Well, over the last six weeks, it's been six weeks, we've been pushing through a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I've been hearing some some really positive feedback that people are really engaging with this series, and I've, I've been hearing some comments about how different aspects of this series have really impacted uh, your, your lives, uh, which has been really good to hear. Maybe it's been about how your, your upbringing or your spiritual upbringing um, has, has, not, has, has shaped you in a way that you've gone, maybe I have to rethink that, or about how some hurts of your past or, or things that have gotten in the way of you growing as a, as a disciple. So it's really good to hear these comments and to hear how God is moving within this series. So if you've got other stories or things that you've um, been impacted by, it's great to hear those, those comments and those stories. Um, I hope that in some way, no matter how big or, or small, this series has started to help you think about your emotional, uh, emotional well-being, emotional uh, thinking, emotional maturity, and what it looks like to be a, uh, an emotional and spiritual healthy person, because it is all about this full life discipleship. Discipleship's not all about just filling your mind, is it? It's about the response to God in our everyday lives. We're told about the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, do our actions sort of reflect ripe fruit, or does it re- reflect the, the fruit that gets stuck at the back of the cupboard and starts smelling after a couple of weeks that you didn't realise was there, um, like the onions that got stuck in my cupboard. Don't let onions get stuck at the back of your cupboard. Never a worse smell. <laughs> today we're going to pull, start to pull, anyway, today and next week, we're going to pull all of what we've heard in the last six weeks together. Because we've, up until now we've been considering our lives, who we are and how we're impacted by this emotional and spiritual maturity. But... We're not the only ones living on this planet, are we? We've got another 7.9 billion people trying to navigate it in their own way as well. And not everyone's going to see things the way that I see things or the way that you see things. Not everyone will appreciate who you are or even respect who you are. So this morning we're going to look beyond ourselves and start to look at how these things that we've been talking about impact who we are. So let's pray. And we'll get into thinking about that this morning. Our Lord, we just pray that this morning you help us to understand your word, help us to understand the example of Jesus in our lives, that we may be people who love you well, but also love others well. Help us to continue to be learners of your word. May we never assume that we've made it, but that there's always something else that you're teaching us. So bless us this morning as we hear from you. In Jesus' name. Amen. In Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karmazov, and I haven't read that, I have to admit, a wealthy woman asks an elderly monk how she can know if God really exists. He tells her no explanation or argument can achieve this, only the practice of active love. She then confesses that sometimes she dreams about a, love, a life of loving service to others. And at such times, she thinks that perhaps she'll become a sister of mercy, living in holy poverty and serving the poor in the humblest ways. (laughs) But then it crosses her mind how ungrateful some of these people that she would serve would be likely to be. They'd probably complain about how the soup was too cold 
or the bread was too stale or the bed was uncomfortable. And she confesses that she couldn't bear such ingratitude. And so her dreams about serving others vanish and once again she starts wondering, is there really a God? To this, the wise monk replies to her, Love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Loving well, it's the goal of the Christian life, really. It requires that we grow into emotionally healthy adults in Christ. We're given 13 or so years of schooling to help us solve and understand complex maths equations, aren't we? We are given this time so that it makes sure our English language, the way that we speak, is really, really good with lots of good words that we use. <laughs> Obviously work for me. <laughs> Teachers do a great job doing this over 13 years of our lives. And we love that teachers feed into our kids. And I know they do more than just teach them maths equations as how to speak. But, um, but we don't get the same help in our emotional growth, do we? Because we think that we'd never, will we ever use x squared plus y squared equals 15, but then we step into a fruit shop and say, we've got to weigh this amount of fruit, how many fruit are we going to be able to use? And all of a sudden we're using all that. Yet many of us grew up in Scripture, learning the Ten Commandments, learning the Bible, learning to understand the truths of the Bible, yet we don't often see the evidence of the learning that we've grown up with in Christian lives. And if we're not careful, or if we don't practice what we learn, we can end up being emotionally immature as adults who struggle to understand, to know how to love really well. See, the Bible teaches us truths, for sure. Jesus shows us what those truths look like in action. But how do we apply them to today? For example, how can I be quick to hear and slow to speak? Because sometimes it's not easy. How can I be angry, yet not in my anger sin? How can I watch my heart above all else? How can I speak the truth in love? How can I be a true peacemaker? How can I mourn well? How can I not bear false witness against my neighbor? How can I get rid of all bitterness, rage, and envy? Because these are truths that are all in Scripture that we're to live by as followers of Christ in a fallen world. We're to live by them to show that, that we are different. We are countercultural. Our actions, if we follow Jesus, become a point of difference in an age that is increasingly more insular and selfish. This is how we learn to love well. Barb read from us from Mark 12, and in, in, we learn from Jesus in this. Mark 12, 28 says, One of the teachers of the law that came and heard them debating noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. And he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And he said, The most important one, Jesus answered, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Out of all the things Jesus could have responded to these, these, these people, he chooses love. A love for God and a love for others as the two most important things we can do. Out of the 613 Old Testament commandments, they boil down to these two. Brother Lawrence in 1691, quite a while ago, wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Last week, we talked a little bit about this, about the need to have a daily rhythm, a daily time with God, twice daily, and a weekly Sabbath. And Brother Lawrence, he was way ahead of his time in these thoughts. For Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God is a, a simple and attentive, a simple attentiveness and a general loving awareness of God all the time. He was all about developing the habit of being in prayer, which allows you to continually be with God through your whole day, through your whole existence. It's being aware of God as you do your work, as you go about your daily chores. Well, author Mike Mason, he took that understanding and considered not only the greatest commandment, but the, the one that Jesus put with that, love others as well. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of People. And in it, he describes being fully present, not just to God, but to the people that we meet in our daily life. In it, he says that through practicing the presence of people, we start to become aware of God's presence, not just in ourselves, but within the relationships that we have. Now, the trouble that we have is that we rarely mold the two together. We rarely bring the practice of the presence of God and the practice of the presence of people together. We've talked recently for, about the need of Jesus needing to withdraw from his busyness and be with his Father, but he never did that uh, without still being with people. He would take that space and then move into a space of being with people. He was fully present to his father, yet the flow-on effect was he was fully present to the people that were around him. The two went together. Jean Vayner, in her book, Becoming Human, wrote this. says, Love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Jesus did this with the people that he met. He was able to listen, to pay attention to, and meet the needs, the felt needs, the very real needs of those in front of him. Because that's what Jesus was all about. It moved him to compassion. It saw him heal the sick. It saw him take time to sit and be with lepers, those who couldn't walk, someone who would reach out and touch his cloak. He would say, I need to speak with that person. It brought him to sit at the table with the so-called sinners and tax collectors. See, the religious leaders of the time, they missed this connection, didn't they? They missed the connection being present to God and also present to those people in front of us. Those, those religious leaders, they were zealous. They were diligent. They were totally committed to the Scriptures. They were committed to God. They would memorize the Scriptures. They'd understand this is what we've got to do. We've got to pray multiple times a day. 
We've got to do all that's required of us, that we may be outstanding religious people. Yet they didn't link that with the relationships that they uh, would be with. And there's this big chasm in between. Barb read for us as well from Mark chapter 2. We have Jesus eating this meal at Levi's house. Jesus had just called him to be part of his band of disciples in the preceding verses, this, this tax collector. And in having meal with Levi, Mark 2.15 tells us that many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. See, eating a meal together in Jesus' culture was a sign of friendship and acceptance. This was almost scandalous. And the Pharisees see it and they ask the question. I often wonder what that would have looked like. They're they're having this meal together and you can just imagine them sitting back going, what's he doing? Why is he eating with them? Jesus must have heard the talking because the Pharisees asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And immediately the question places the tax collectors and sinners into into a different category to themselves. It pushes them to the side It was a condescending comment, wasn't it, by a group of people who, in their own minds, are are up here on their holiness. Jesus ate with them, and the Pharisees scoffed at them. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees, must have heard what they're saying, it says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. I used to look at this a little bit, this passage, as Jesus sort of acknowledging to the Pharisees that he understands what they're talking about. He understands them. He understands that they are sinners, that they're in need of a saviour, so I need to be with them. However, as I thought through this passage a little more, I wonder if Jesus used the Pharisees' words and ideals against them. He says, you call them sinners, but I've come to call those you call sinners into my kingdom. These are the ones I see that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Not those who look all healthy on the outside, yet are whitewashed tombs on the inside. See, I'm going to practice the presence of people, regardless of how they look to you, because it reflects the practice of the presence of God. Jesus, he refused to have this chasm in between. He refused to separate the practice of the presence of God from the practice of presence of people. He brought the two together. In fact, Luke's account of the greatest commandment, Jesus tells a parable to help the experts of the law understand this. They were pressing Jesus on the greatest commandment again, and Jesus gives the response that we heard earlier, love love God and love your neighbour. So the experts ask, well, who's my neighbour then? I want to know, who do you think my neighbour is? And in reply, Jesus says, well, there's a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when they saw the man, he passed on by the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on by the other side. They'd be unclean, can't go near them. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the question, Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, Well, <laughs> the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus replies, Go and do likewise. Now there's a whole lot in the Good Samaritan story that we can unpack, but you might know a bit about, about it already. But there's a man that's beaten up and left for dead. The ones who should have known better should have been there to help. Yet it's the Samaritan. No one who would associate with the helping in this, in this moment. He comes to the poor man's rescue. Jesus' parable showed the, the law people of the time that regardless of your status in the community, you might be the, you might be the highest in your community status in the eyes of others. Yet if you've not shown a loving presence to the people who are on the road with you, you've not really practiced the presence of God. Jesus' final words to those law abiders who are trying to trip Jesus up at every step was, go and do likewise. Take your relationship with God and embrace it with the relationship with those around you also. Go and do likewise. Make those relationships you have with others be a reflection of the relationship that you have with God. But we have a problem. Humanity's greatest problem is that we take our eyes off God so often, don't we? And where do we put them instead? We put them firmly on ourselves. That is what the essence of sin is. So often we count ourselves as the center of the universe. We may say, Jesus is central to who I am. We may go to church. We may do all these good things and that sort of thing. We may give our money to the church. We may serve. We may do all these things. But yet we still put, take our eyes off him and put our eyes on ourselves. That's what sin is. I reckon if the world was full of people who are all like me, life would be so much simpler, wouldn't it? If, we're all, if, I, if, if you were all like me, I would know how to respond to you, therefore my actions would be, uh, I'd be able to figure out what my actions would need to be. So when Pete 330 meets Pete 3030, they can connect in a way that is all happy for Pete <laughs> because they know each other. They know each other intimately. It would make for a very boring world to have so many Pete's. But you'd be able to do that so well. But the world's not made up of all the same person as you. The world is made up of all sorts of people. Some like you, some who are exact opposites to you. Some who see life in a very, very different way. When Solari and I first got married, we, we lit a unity candle. If you don't want a unity candle, this is three candles, and the mums, our mums both lit an outside candle. And we're at Heathmont Baptist, and the air conditioning, it was quite a warm day, and the air conditioning was, was on, and it kept on blowing the candles out. So our poor mums are sitting there lighting the candles about five times. Um, someone turned off the air conditioning, then everyone sweated for the rest of the service. But anyway, um, we had these unity candles, and at the end of the service, or through the service, um, we took those candles, and we lit a middle candle, and then we blew our own candles out that our mum had lit. And it signified that we were joining in together 
as one. We were being unified, joined as one. Little did we know that as we became established as a married couple, we realised that being one didn't mean that Solari had to be exactly like me or how I actually wanted her to be. Being one didn't mean that Solari was to make me become who she wanted me to be because I was made differently to her. So we needed to learn pretty quickly that being one didn't mean giving up individual identities. Rather, it meant allowing the other to be uniquely who God had made that person to be, whilst not losing the uniqueness of who I was myself. Nicolaus Copernicus in the 1500s, he theorised that the earth revolves around the sun and rotates about its own axis. It was a, 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 a bit scandalous because people thought the earth was the centre of the world, of the solar system, of the whole universe. It was scandalous because it told us that no longer were we the central piece of the system. The same theory needs to find its way into how we perceive ourselves in relationship to others, doesn't it? Rather than the world revolving around me, seeing the centrality of others, seeing the godness of others is revolutionary, that we may, may become more mature and emotionally mature. It's not easy sometimes because of that sin space in our lives. But how do we develop out these relationships with others that reflect the relationship with God? We unfortunately live in this sin world where we lose sight of the uniqueness of others around us and our eyes go back to ourselves. Rather than seeing others as their own person, they sometimes become a means to an end. They become an it in our sight. I remember this happening in a new job that I took on. And I started this new job. And day one, I was asked to go into uh, an office with a whole lot of the other staff and employees. And they were, just, they were huddling around a whiteboard discussing the future of the organisation. I'd been employed for my specific strengths and gifts. And I was excited about my role. However, on day one, um, my, the, the conversation went around... Well, Pete, this is your role now, but what we see you doing in a couple of years' time is this, and we want to move you into this space. And I was just flabbergasted. I was like, that's not what I want want to do. That's not what I was made to, to do. Literally, I became a magnet on a board with a vague title, not even my own name. I'd become an it, and my true self wasn't even considered. You know, I'm guilty of doing that as well. You might be in the same boat. I'm guilty of talking about our state premier in negative ways due to what he, the work he does and the decisions that he makes, whether that's right or wrong. Doing this makes Daniel Andrews a politician, and that's all. It makes him removed from being a human being, being a husband, being a dad, and the pressure that he's had to go through over the last year and a half having to lead through one of the most difficult periods of our history. Do I agree with everything that Daniel Andrews has said and done? Well, no. That's okay. But Jesus' command is not just to agree with your neighbour, but to love your neighbour. How else might this look? How might this fit, work out in, its own, in your life? Maybe it's treating someone badly because of the day you've had, not because of what they've done. 
Maybe it's being threatened by a friend or a colleague because they disagree with your view. Maybe it's serving your neighbours and helping them because, yeah, they might need help, but when they don't come to the church event that you invited them to, you think, well, I'll just go and serve next door instead. So you see, treating people as an it results in a frustration because it doesn't go the way that I want it and it brings our eyes back on ourselves. And when this happens, we can't find space or room for the presence of God in that relationship because it means they've got to be wrong and I must be right. You see, Augustine, he defines sin as this. He defines sin saying, being caved in on oneself, having our eyes solely focused on ourselves. We become so inward-looking, and relationships just cannot flourish. C.S. Lewis described hell in The Great Divorce as a place where each person lives in isolation, millions of miles apart from one another because they can't get along. See, the defining aspect of these two definitions of sin and hell is separation from God. God can't rate a mention in them. So the question we ask is, how do we develop our relationships with others to reflect our relationship with God and not have this chasm in between? Jewish theologian Martin Buber, he talks about the most healthy or mature relationships possible between two people is an I-thou relationship, not an I-it relationship. In such a relationship, I recognize that I'm made in God's image and so is every other person on the face of the earth. This makes them a, a vow to me. And because of that reality, every person deserves respect. That is, I treat them with dignity and worth. I don't dehumanize them. I don't objectify them. I affirm them that they have a unique and separate existence apart from me. That was created by God. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he didn't expect your neighbor to look, sound, and act the same way or even have the same values as you. He just wants you to love them regardless. And we might ask the same question as a religious leader. Well, then who therefore is my neighbor? Well, the answer surely has to be anyone you bump into. See, when we see the uniqueness and the holy otherness of people, the gap between who they are and who we are, and our presence of God and presence of people, is no longer a chasm. It becomes a sacred space where, where God's love crosses that boundary and unites us even through our differences, even through our conflict, even through our times of hurt. Because that's what God's done for us. See, God, through Jesus Christ, split that chasm and said, no, no longer do we need to be separate. One of the greatest gifts we can give to our world as a community of people of KSBC is to be a community of emotionally healthy, mature adults who have learned to love well. To be a community who understand the link between practicing the presence of God and practicing the presence of people. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean we'll always see eye to eye. It doesn't mean there may not be conflict anymore and the church will be perfect because we're all imperfect people. Decisions can be made that might not be to your liking, yet 
in seeing each person in God's image, we are able to see beyond the difference and continue to love because that's how God sees us. You know, one of the most influential groups of people on the planet, that the planet has ever seen started as a sort of a nothing sort of group of people and from a nothing sort of place. And individually, if they stayed as individuals, would have just been nobodies. They were not likely to connect together socially even. They were not likely to all see eye to eye. They had different personalities that would grate upon each other. Yet the one thing that connected them and set them apart was that they had a willingness to look beyond their differences and to see God's presence in the midst of them. I talk about the 12 disciples. A band of brothers who went through plenty of trials. Their leader was taken and killed because one of their own betrayed them. Who started a movement that had seen literally millions of people now follow. A group that sat in that same space with those who were classified as sinners and, and tax collectors. Who saw beyond the differences at that table. And practiced not only the presence of God, but learnt the presence to practice the presence of people as well. So this week, I want to leave you with two challenges. The first one is, as you meet people this week, whether you've known them for five minutes, whether you've known them for five years or 55 years, ask God to help you be fully present in your interaction with them. This week, because it doesn't take that much to do that, this week, Kyra, Tarquin and I had coffee before school. We dropped Jasper off to his music lesson at 7.30 we went and got a coffee at the Pines. And we saw this guy was sitting next on the table next to us and, and as we had our coffee we were playing rock, paper, scissors and just having a bit of fun. And the guy sort of leans over and said, oh, I used to play that when I was a kid. And we started having this chat. And this chat lasted about 10 minutes but I had the choice at that stage. It's like... Excuse me, man, I'm hanging out with my kids. Can you just move yourself over there and just leave me alone? Or engage. And he told me about his, um, the way he used to work, all the different um, things he used to do um, on rigging and all sorts of weird and wonderful things that I had no idea about. But he just loved chatting. He showed me photos. He showed all this stuff because I practiced the presence of being with that person I encourage you, I challenge you, be present to the people in front of you as you're present with God. The second thing that I challenge you to do this week, I'll ask you a question of it, is there someone that you need to make peace with this week? If we, see, if we were to see the relationships as a reflection of our connection with God, surely we're to find the capacity to humbly bring ourselves to apologize or to Find space to work out conflict. Conflict's a part of life. A part of loving well as a, an emotionally mature, healthy person is to see that sometimes that conflict can, doesn't need to hurt us in the long run. Conflict can draw apart, but conflict can also be an avenue to rebuilding and flourishing a relationship. So if there's someone that you need to talk to or speak to, to apologize to, to say sorry to, I encourage you to do that. That that relationship may see 
the beauty of the presence of God in it as well. Humility to admit that relationships have resolved around self and the ability to forgive are two virtues vital to creating a community that makes a lasting impact. I believe that's what we want to do, is to be a community that makes a lasting impact by the way that we love. Let me pray as I invite the musicians forward. Our Lord and God, we thank you for the examples that you give to us about how we need to love well. And God, sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes when we don't see eye to eye, it can be easier to walk away. But God, you call us to bridge the chasm that you may be present in all relationships so that the other may see Jesus, that the other may know Jesus through your relationship. So God, we pray that you help us to be people who become emotionally mature in the way that we love. We thank you for this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.